Good morning and welcome to everyone. We have several visitors with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. We're glad for the people who are uh, joining us via live stream as well. We have combined classes from sixth grade and up because this is our first lesson in our series, uh, Seeing the Bible's Big Picture. Brother Alan Webster from Jacksonville, Alabama is with us and he will be bringing all these lessons. There's a great series coming here, folks. I'm glad, glad you're all here. Uh, we usually get a, a uh, brief biological sketch of, of the speakers who are coming, and we've got several items here. There's way too much for me to go through right now. We'll, we'll do a little bit more at the, at the morning worship hour. But there were two items on, on the list that, that I got that I really uh, enjoyed reading. Uh, his, he, he sent this to us. He said the brief description of, of him is Alan Webster is just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's a pretty good, pretty good description. His preferred uh, introduction is Alan Webster is a minister of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm going to leave it at that for the introduction for right now. But if you'll join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to come and listen as our brother Alan Webster discusses your word and explains your word from your word. Father, please bless him as our speaker. Please bless us as listeners that we might take what we learned and better serve and glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. But most people don't know much about the Bible. They know broad strokes. They know chief characters. They know a little bit about the Old Testament, a little bit more about the New Testament. And yet, they do not know the Bible. And as we go through this, we'll spend some time studying some of the small details that we may not have heard before. But in broad strokes, we're going to look at the entire Bible in one series of lessons. This book is really a library of books, 66 books under one cover, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, uh, 773,746 words, 3 million plus letters in the Bible. And some people are intimidated by that. They think, ah, where do you start? I'll never learn all that. If you put together a puzzle, what would be the first thing that you would do? You'd find the straight edge pieces, right? You put together the boundaries of the puzzle and then each little piece would fit in more easily. You can look at the colors, you can look at the shape, and soon you're able to put more and more pieces together. The same thing is true of the Bible. If we, if we can have the, the overall picture, the, the airplane view, the 50,000 feet view of the Bible, we see the layout, we see the structure, we see the main characters, the three dispensations, then it's easier to look at any verse or chapter or book within that framework. 
But just to open up the Bible and to randomly choose a verse or a chapter and then expect to understand that verse or chapter would, would be foolish, wouldn't it? We would not treat any other book like that. We wouldn't take a book off the shelf of a library and open it up to some random page and begin reading and expect to know and understand what that page is about. We need to start at the beginning. We need to understand what the title of the book is and is it fiction, is it nonfiction, what genre is it? So we look at the Bible that way. We're just going to look at it as a book. Now I ask you to turn to the book of Genesis. So I'd like for you to hold the book of Genesis in one hand and hold the rest of the Old Testament, Exodus through Malachi, in your other hand. I know some people use their phones or a tablet uh, for your Bible, and that's okay. But if you have a paper Bible handy, then this exercise might help, help to remember this a, a little better. We're involving three of the senses instead of two as we use tactile, we, we, we touch, touch the pages. So if you're holding the book of Genesis in one hand and you're holding Exodus through Malachi in the other hand, may I ask you which hand has the most covers the most years. And you might say, well, that's a lot of pages in my right hand and fewer pages in my left hand. I'm going to go with my right hand, Exodus through Malachi, 38 books instead of the one book. But there are more years covered in one book of the Bible, the first book, than in all the rest of the pages of the Bible put together, including the New Testament. You're covering 4,000 years in the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. You are covering 2,500 of those years in the first book of the Bible. Of course, that leaves 1,500 years for the rest of the Old Testament. So 1,000 years more in the book of Genesis than the rest of the Old Testament period. Now, the Bible is divided, or the Bible covers, three dispensations. It's not a word you probably used over breakfast this morning. What does dispensation mean? It just means a period of time when a law is kept or in force. So there have been three Bible laws. There have been three periods of time when those laws were in force. Those three Bible periods are the patriarchal dispensation, the Mosaic dispensation, and the Christian dispensation. Now you see, I have in my hand Genesis, Exodus through Malachi, and Matthew through Revelation. So those three sections, and those are the three sections dispensationally of the Bible. You have patriarchy covered in Genesis, in the first few chapters of Exodus, but for our purposes in the book of Genesis. Then you have the Mosaic dispensation. The law of Moses was in force in the Old Testament period. And then the New Testament is the Christian dispensation. If you wanted to put years to it, then you have 2,500, 1,500. We've already covered that. And then you have in the New Testament so far 2,000 years. Now, there are two kinds of people in every audience. One, one kind of person is, I love details. And if that's, your, if that's your personality, you're like, this is going to be a great series. I'm going to enjoy all these facts. And then there's another group that says, 
I don't like all these details. You lost me already. And they're saying this is going to be a long week. So it's okay to be either one, you know, your learning style, what you get out of this week is dependent on you. It really, uh, we're going to cover a lot of details, but we're not only going to cover details. And if that's not your thing, then just, just wait. And we're going to get to uh, the more practical things as the lessons, as the lessons go along. I would encourage you to either take notes or to write in your Bible. I really like to write notes in my Bible and I'll give you an opportunity as we go along each lesson to take a few notes in your Bible. Now, this lesson was advertised as um, interesting facts about the Bible in the Old Testament. We're going to work some of those in as we go through, but I decided to cover the 4,000 years of the Old Testament in one day instead of one lesson. So we're going to do that Bible class AM, PM today, Lord willing. We'll look at the book of Genesis uh, in the, this first lesson. Uh, we'll, we'll look at it structurally. So if you have the book of Genesis in your hand, now turn to Genesis 1 through 11. 1 through 11, and then hold in your other hand 12 through 50. Now that's the natural division of the book of Genesis. Of course, it's not balanced as to chapters or 50 chapters. So it's, it leans heavily toward the second half, but that's the natural division of the book. Chapters one through 11 deals with human history. Chapters 12 through 50 deal with Hebrew history. So you're going from the broad approach to the more narrow approach in the book. He's starting with uh, the history of the world and then he's talking about the history of Israel or the beginning of Israel in the second half of the book. Now, if you're holding those two in your hand, I'm going to ask you the same question we ask about the Old Testament. Which hand has the most, covers the most years? And you might say, well, you got me the first time. You're not going to get, get me again. And you're right. The first 11 chapters cover of the 2,500 years, 2,100 years. And chapters 12 through 50 cover then 400 years. And the reason for that is because the author Moses is getting us quickly to the point where he's dealing with the overall theme of the Bible. He's going from what we really needed to know about man's early history to what man needs to know about salvation history. So when you, it, maybe you've skipped the rock across the pond you know, you, you, you skip the rock and the first jump is a big one, a big one, and then they get smaller and finally it just goes under. That's the way it is in the book of Genesis. Big jumps in the first 11 chapters. And then it gets smaller. The years get smaller. Now, if you're taking notes, this, this might be something you want to remember. The book of Genesis deals with four and four. Four events in the first 11 chapters. These are easy to remember, even if you're not jotting these down. If I ask you on the way out, you'd be able to give them back. These are simple. So the first 11 chapters, four events. Creation, fall, flood, tower. I'll give you the, the chapters for the detailed people. Genesis uh, 1 through 5. Creation, no, 1, through, one and 2. Fall, 3 through 5. Flood, 6 through 9, and then Tower, 10 and 11. Creation, fall, flood, tower. What does that mean? 
Well, that refers to the four major events in human history that we needed to know so that we could understand ourselves and our world. How did this world get here? Are we just up from the slime? Are we graduated apes on the tree of time? Is evolution true? No, no, no. We are down from the hand of God. We are made in the image of God. We are given dominion over all the earth and all the other creation. And we are the only part of creation that will outlive the creation. This world will one day burn and everything in it, 2 Peter 3, uh, 1 through 12, but we will not, or at least hopefully we will not be in any fire when this world is over because God has procured for us salvation that we might live with Him in heaven. We will outlive this world regardless of whether we're saved or lost because we're made in the image of God and God is eternal. Now that's creation. That's how we got here. Well, how did the world get in such a mess? Well, that's the fall, chapter 3, which we'll look at more uh, later today. And then the flood. Well, God's patience has an end. God is a patient, long-suffering, loving, compassionate, merciful, but just God. And eventually, the patience of God comes to an end and His justice or His punishment must be met. That's chapter 6. 120 years, and my, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Yet 120 years, and Noah preached during that time, but nobody listened except his family. Eight people got in the ark, and God closed the door, and then the waters of the great deep were broken up, and the waters above were brought down, and so there was a meeting of the waters, and the world was flooded, and only eight people survived. Every land Land-dwelling, air-breathing creature died, except those eight. And then God gave the same command He had originally given, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so you have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah and their wives, who are responsible for all the population of the earth, including you and me. And they, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little later, about where they settled and so forth. Creation, fall, flood, tower. That's 10 and 11. Uh, in chapter 11, is, you have a man rebelling against God again. We're going to make a tower unto heaven. That seems to be not about height, but purpose. Unto heaven, that is, in honor of heaven, worshiping the stars and so forth. And God caused their languages to differ. Uh, for sake of illustration... French, Portuguese, Spanish, Chinese, English. I don't know what the languages were, but all these people are working together to build this tower, and that, now they're not able to communicate with each other. You know, bring me, that, bring me that rock, but they didn't understand the words. Mix up some more mortar, but he had no idea what was intended. And so before long, the ones that could speak, could understand each other grouped together. The Spanish speakers, the Portuguese speakers, Chinese speakers, whatever it was. And then before long, they migrated into separate, as the, as the separate groups migrated into different areas. So that's how you got the people groups. That's how you got the, ling the linguistic differences in the world. But of course, those have continued to be modified over the centuries. Four events. What are they? Creation, fall, flood, tower. First 11 chapters, first 2100 years of human history in just those 11 chapters. 
But now we slow down in the second half of Genesis, and you talk about four people, four events, four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, it's simple, or it makes sense why the years would shrink, because now you're talking about a father, son, grandson, and great-grandson. So even though they live long periods of time, um, 175 years, 180 years, 147 years, 110 years, they still were consecutive and their lives overlapped. So you only have 400 years total. Now, Do you want the, for the, for the detail people, if, you, if you're not a detail person, you can just rest for a minute. I'll give you the details here. Uh, for those who are jotting down chapters and you want this, let me give you the, the chapters of the book of Genesis. What, what, I, did, I did 1 through 11, but now let's do 12 through 50. So Abraham is 12, chapters 12 through 25. Isaac, 26 to 30. Jacob, I'll go over these again. Jacob, 31 to 36. Joseph, 37 to 50. Give that to you again. Abraham, 12 to 25. Now, of course, these overlap. You know, they don't just start in their chapter, but the major part of their history is covered in these chapters. 12 through 50, 12 through 50, 12 through 25, 26 through 30, 31 to 36, 37 through 50. Now, Joseph has more chapters well, same, uh, same number of chapters, but more material as Abraham. But Joseph has 13 chapters. Guess how many sins are recorded of Joseph? Uh, if, if you tune me out for a minute, tune me back in. This is practical. Okay. Uh, zero. 13 chapters and no sins. Now, Joseph sinned, of course. All men sin, Romans 3.23. But perhaps... He did not sin as frequently as most men sin, and, and he did not sin as badly, or with as, as bad as sins, in other words, as most men do. And in that, he is a type of Jesus. Jesus lived 33 years without sins. And you have 89 chapters about Jesus and no sins. 13 chapters, no sins. All right, well, let's talk about... <clears throat> Let's go to Genesis 3. I said we would, we would cover this chapter in more detail. So we'll go to Genesis 3. You really need a clock in here. How can you preach without a clock? This is... <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 3. I have no idea how much time is left, but let's go to Genesis 3 and uh, talk about the first sin. First, first sin. If you want to outline this chapter, let's, let's outline uh, or outline the first section of the chapter. I'll give you a larger outline um, later. But let's talk about the, the four key thoughts, four facts to understand about verses 1 through 6. And this is the practical part. This is, uh, this is where we live. Because the same tempter that he faced you face when you walk out those doors and, and even in here, right? Because Matthew 13 says that when the seed is being sown, what's the devil doing? Trying to snatch it away, trying to distract us, trying to get us to watch what's out the window rather than what's going on in here or the, the cute girl that's down front, you know, 
or the baby that's, well, snatch it away because that's where the power is. That's where our lives are changed. That's where our souls are saved. Well, the devil's in here, he's out there, but he's, he's in Genesis 3. That's where we're first introduced to him. And you have these four ideas. You have the tempter, that's the devil. You have the target, that's Eve. You have his tactics. And then you have the tragedy. It's easy to remember. Tempter, target, tactics, tragedy. Now, we can write our story around that too, can't we? We face the tempter, 1 Peter 5, 8, as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. So the person that looks back at you in the mirror when you shave in the morning or when you put on your makeup, that's the person that's a, that's a target for the devil. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you wear the name Christian, then there's a target on your back. There's a target to pull you back into the world from which you have been delivered because you're on the list of those that the devil doesn't have. And you are especially his target. And Eve was in that category. There is an innocence about early, early man and woman. Uh, they're, they're created full grown, of course, but there seems to be a, almost a, an early teenage aura about Eve here an innocence, uh, an inexperience that she displays when she's dealing with the devil. And, it, and the devil is a worthy foe. You know, we talked about him being a roaring lion, but he's also called a dragon. And in Revelation uh, 12, here a serpent. So he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. 2 Peter 11, no, 2 Corinthians 11:3 says that he, he's subtle. Paul says, I fear lest by any means the devil tempt you as he did Eve. I'm summarizing what that verse says, but he mentions he beguiled Eve. He tricked her. That same chapter, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 11:14 says, no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He doesn't come at us red being, horns, pitchfork, pointed tail. That's, that's what the devil wants us to think about when we think about the devil. That's not what he looks like. Do you remember when Jesus revealed to his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and killed and resurrected for the first time in that much detail in Matthew 16? That's um, 16 through 20. But verse 21, you know, Peter's response to that was, not so, Lord. Well, you... We get it. You know, that's his best friend. He can't imagine Jesus not being with the disciples. And uh, he said, no, no, Lord, don't do that. No, don't let that happen. Be that far from, from what happens. You remember how Jesus responded to that? Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, we look like Peter, right? It was Peter. But the devil didn't take over Peter like he took over the serpent. But when Peter used those words, he was saying what the devil wanted to be said because the devil didn't want Jesus to go through with God's plan to save man. So I'm using that as an illustration to, to say that sometimes temptations come to us through our friends, those closest to us. They look innocent. They seem to be 
benign. But even the false teachers appear as angels of light. They look good on camera, but, but it's what they're saying from Scripture. Or is it from some other place and therefore of the devil? 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. So that's the devil. That's, that's our enemy. But what about his, the, the tempter, the, his target, Eve? I mentioned she seemed to be innocent. But what I want to emphasize here is that she seems to be separate from Adam at this point. He's not mentioned until the last part of verse 6. And it says in the New Testament that Eve was beguiled. Never says that about Adam. It says that Eve gave the fruit to Adam and he did eat in, in verse 6 here. And 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 talks about uh, the different roles in the church of men and women. And a part of that discussion was that Eve was tempted, was beguiled, was tricked. But Adam wasn't. So Adam sinned with his eyes wide open, which is worse than what Eve did, but it's different. And that's the main point, it's different. She fell for the temptations of the devil. So the devil chose his time to tempt Eve evidently when she was by herself and didn't have Adam say, no, let's not do that. Or you remember what God said? No, she's by herself. When you think about how the devil approaches us and, and even Jesus, when was it that the devil tempted Jesus? Well, all the way through his life he was tempted. He was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. But the, the recorded temptation that we have, the great temptation in his life, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when was that? After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you think he was clear-headed? Do you think he was healthy? You think he was distracted? I would say those are obvious answers. So the devil came to him at an opportune time. But Jesus was still more than a match for the devil even then. So what about us? The Bible tells us, neither give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26, 27. What does that mean? Don't give him the advantage. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. Um, you, you could illustrate this a lot of different ways. Let's talk about money. Don't, don't, don't get yourself in so much debt, for instance, that you'd be tempted to embezzle funds from your employer to try to cover the debts. Don't, don't get in gambling debts and then have to steal to try to pay off the, the bookie uh, because your life or your limbs are being threatened. Here's a boyfriend and girlfriend dating. Maybe they've been dating for a few months now. And don't, don't put yourself in a vulnerable position parked in a dark place away from everybody or going into an apartment when nobody else is there and to watch a movie for two out. Just don't, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted to sin. That's what the devil wants us to do. So you have the tempter... You have his target. But let's talk about his tactics. And I'll read with you on this one if you have your Bible in Genesis 3 because these details may not be as, as um, fresh in our minds. Drop down to the middle part of verse 1. And he said, that's the devil, unto the woman, 
Yea, hath God said? The first tactic of the devil is to question. Question. And his purpose is to create doubt. Has God said? Did the devil know what God has said? Obviously he did. You continue reading here, he knew about the conversation. But he's asking Eve, do you really, is that really what he said? The next tactic was to deny. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, well, let's come back to the woman. Let's drop to verse four. And the serpent said unto the woman, this is his second tactic, ye shall not surely die. That's denial. First he questioned God. Now he's flatly denying what God said. Let's uh, put these in, let's bring these into our lives, like the application. Never put a question mark where God put a period. Now God does, uh, people do that all the time. Uh, let's think about our world. Um, God said marriage is between a man and a woman. What does the devil say? Hath God said marriage is between two people of different genders? And the world says love is love. Whether it's between two women who love each other in a sexual and a marital way, or two men, love is love. Christians are wrong. The Bible is wrong. God, therefore, is wrong. Put a question mark where God put a period. Is sexual activity between two people who are unmarried really wrong? You know, the homosexual movement has a point. Listen carefully here. Don't miss the point of what I'm about to say. But you know what they say about us as Christians? They say, well, you Christians condemn us for same-sex relationships. But you are silent about sexual relations between people who are not married. And you know why? Because you got people sitting in the pews who are living together without marriage, or they're in a sexual dating relationship. And that, that you just observe the Passover on talking about that, because that's what people don't want to hear who are in your pews. But you're throwing red meat to the to the predator when you talk about homosexuality being wrong. You know, they got a point. The answer is not, don't say that this kind of sin is wrong. The answer is to say, all sin is wrong. We preach the Bible, all the Bible. And if it applies to those that are inside the walls, all the more important to preach it. You see, sometimes we put a question mark. Well, it's not really wrong because we're going to get married. We already talked about it. And it's not really wrong because we've been dating for a year. What do you expect? Or it's not really wrong because we live in modern times. I mean, this is not the 1950s or the AD 33s or the Old Testament. Nobody expects anybody to, to date without 
Never put a question mark where God put a period. Well, what about gender roles in worship? Has God really said men are to be the leaders in worship? Well, well, that's discriminatory. That's not right. That's put a question mark where God put a period. I mentioned 1 Timothy 2. It's not a lesson about that, but you can put that in your notes, 1 Timothy 2, where it talks about uh, mankind, the general word, in the earlier part of the chapter about prayer. And then when he starts talking about worship roles, he changes words. Aner for man, gune for woman. Those are gender-specific words. I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That's the specific word for male. And the next verse talks about women being in silence. That's the specific word, gune, for, for woman or wife. Now let's go further into our text. <clears throat> you have the third tactic of the devil is to substitute. So deny, so question, deny, substitute. That's verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He's saying, God's holding out on you. You, you would be better off if you listen to me than God. I've got something better for you than God does. God is holding you down. He's holding you back. You eat this fruit and you see. Now, with most lies, there's some truth in it. The most effective lies have, are, are partial, partial lies. This is this way. You continue reading the chapter and it says, their eyes are opened. Well, that's what the devil said would happen. But it's not a good thing. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And, and then you continue reading and God says now that they know. Well, they know it's not an academic thing. It's, it's an experiment thing. In other words, they know about seeing now, not because I told them this is right, this is wrong. They know about it because they've experienced it. And it's brought shame. It's brought guilt. It's brought punishment. It's brought death. Well, they didn't know about those things before. Now they know about them. And the devil substituted, but he lied. He substituted not something better, something far worse. And anytime the devil opens his mouth, he may have some truth in it, but his intent is deception. And anytime we, we say, I know the Bible says that, but there's no good way to finish that sentence. You can't finish that sentence in a way that honors God. If God said it, that settles it. Now, God's word needs to be properly understood. We need to know if it's Old Testament, New Testament, first uh, dispensation, second or third. We don't live under the first two. And so there are things that are different in the different laws. All right, now let's look at Eve's response to his temptations. And just like there were three tactics, there are three responses. They all have to do with the word. Eve takes away from what God said. Eve adds to what God said. Eve changed what God said. Now let's see that. In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She, she left something out. Flip back a page, perhaps on the same page in your Bible. Chapter 2, 16, 17, this is where God gave 
the command they're talking about. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest... What's that next word? In the King James, it's freely eat. What does that indicate? Grace, generosity, variety. You've got a whole lot of trees. I don't know how many varieties of fruit and food were available to them, but it was enough to nourish them and evidently enough to give them different tastes, variety, to keep it from becoming boring or monotonous. Thou mayest freely eat. That, that word's not necessary to communicate grammatically. You could leave it out, in other words. It's a modifier. Thou mayest eat. That, that carries the idea. Thou mayest freely eat. Well, that's an adverb modifying eat, of course. It's like the word so in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The word so is not necessary grammatically in that text, is it? For God loved the world, He gave His Son. That communicates the idea. So is, the, is an adverb of degree. It's how much He loved the world. He loved the world more than we can measure. Same thing is true here. It indicates the character of God. Free, freely eat. But she left that out. But then she added something to it. We're back in Genesis 3 now, verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... Uh, let's talk about that just briefly. What separates man from the, the animal world is introspection, perspective, understanding, uh, self-awareness, or in a word, volition. What does that mean? Ability to choose. Um, animals do what they do because either instinct or in the case of domesticated animals, training. But not because they decide to do it. We're different. We have the ability to choose one behavior to reject another behavior. That puts us above the animal world. Now, in order for that volition to have any value or substance, there has to be a choice. God could have made us robots. We automatically do what's right all the time, but He didn't. He, get, he, he could have put us in a world and given us volition, but not given us any choice to do evil. In other words, there's, there are no temptations. Well, that's the same thing as being a robot. You don't have a choice. But God made us creatures of volition, and He gave us the choice. Okay, Adam and Eve, you got all these trees. You got one tree. Just one. In the middle of the garden. Don't eat that one. So you got one rule. You had to have a rule to have volition, to have exercise of volition. Well, that's sort of beside the point, but it's important to see here. The next one, the next part of the verse says, In the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it. This is Eve talking. Neither shall you touch it. Did God say that? We just read what God said. He didn't say that. Now she's making God, in the, first, in the previous verse, she made God less gracious by leaving out freely. Now she's making Him more strict by adding a phrase, neither shall you touch it. Well, that might be good advice, 
You know, why tempt yourself with sin? But God didn't say that. Lest, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The, the third thing that she did, the third thing that she did was modify what God said, change it. The last part of that verse says, lest you die. Is that how God phrased it? No, God phrased it more strongly. Thou shalt surely die. That's a stronger statement than lest you die. So she has, by her treatment of the Word of God, given an indication about her view of the character of God. Well, the result, verse 6. This is the tragedy part. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it looked like it would taste good. Maybe it was a good color, good texture, had a good feel in her hand. Good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now 1 John 2.16 talks about the temptation avenues the devil uses against us. Do you recall what those are? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Do you see those here? Lust of the flesh, it's the first part of the verse. Lust of the eyes, look good. Pride of life, tree to be desired to make one wise. What was it the devil tempted Jesus to do? Eat was the first one, right? Just like Eve. Command these sons to be made bread. It's the lust of the flesh. He's hungry. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give these to you if you'll worship me. Lust, lust the eyes. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Your angels will save you. Pride of life. You look at the temptations you face, you can put them in those three categories. Sometimes they'll be in more than one category, but they'll always be in one of the three. Devil has no new tricks, but he's really good at what he does because he's been doing it a long time. The woman saw that, so forth, the last part of the verse. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. She did the one thing God said don't do, she ate. And by doing so, she and Adam, the last part says, also ate, plunged humanity over the falls of iniquity. The world would never be the same because of one bite, one disobedience, one act of volition. Well, you know, your life, my life are the same way. We could take one bite, one act, five minutes, 30 minutes, and do something that will change the rest of our lives forever and even our eternity if we don't do what God says to do to be forgiven of it. And she gave to Adam and Adam did eat. Last part of the verse says, right, we're going to pick up there, Lord willing, in the next hour and we're going to talk about the bright side of this dark day, about what God did in, in, in correcting what man did. So we'll, we'll be dismissed until the worship, worship hour.